You're listening to a sermon from Sojourn East. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 13, 1 through 9. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you're visiting here, uh, my name is Jonathan, one of the teaching pastors. We are so glad you're here and glad you all made it out on this uh, cold morning. To get into our text today and just kind of start thinking about it, I want to ask you, what's your ADQ, your after-death question? Like, if you had to think of, like, something serious or maybe something funny, like, what, what, is, what is one of those burning questions that you just wonder, like, I am dying to know why this, why this happened. Maybe it's something as big and theological and confusing as something like, how does God, your control of all the world, relate to the sense that we have of making our own choices or what we might call our, our will? Or, you know, just something as big as, like, what is the meaning of life? Or it could be something smaller. I was somebody after the first service was saying one of their their after death question is why are there so few left handed people? Right? It's fair enough. Like you think it'd be fifty fifty. That's a very fair question, right? Um, we could also think of you know questions like is Chick Fil A really your choice, God, uh, for chicken? Or what about Zaxby's or other things? Or what happened to all the half used ballpoint pens? Where do those go? Right. Those or any kind of other questions you could ask. But I think on a more serious note, I think one of the questions that we all have that we all want to know the answer to, and it's one that we ask ourselves often now on this side of of death as well, is how do we think about suffering and evil and why, why is there so much suffering and why is there so much evil and so much brokenness in the world, whether for you, um, and I know I walk life with many of you, whether it's house fires or brain tumors or kidney failure or car accidents or child abuse or broken marriages, broken relationships with your children or friends. Uh, Maybe it's more generally you feel the burden of natural disasters and and, and war and economic fears personally or, or for the whole of society, these things that we, we feel deeply in our bodies and our bones, we have to ask and we do ask, why is there so much suffering and why is there so much evil in the world? I mean, you may have heard of the story of this really wealthy guy 
who had a big family and they loved each other, had a good marriage as far as we could tell, had a huge stock portfolio, owned a bunch of land, was very successful. And on one day, he lost everything. His family was killed except for his wife. He lost all of his property, lost everything he had. And then on top of that, he got extremely sick and was writhing in pain. And his friends, his former friends come to him and they say, finally, well, you know, obviously you must have done something wrong because all this stuff is happening to you. And so there he is completely alone. And if you know the Bible, you know, I've just kind of given you just a very brief summary of a, of a whole book from the Old Testament called the book of Job, which is really the story of all humanity kind of in concentrated form where we see like all the kind of things that we humans experience in suffering and and Job himself wrestles with the question of what does this mean and how do I understand this? And and this is really something that's true for all of us as well. And different religions, you know, offer different answers to this. Um, Buddhism and Stoicism, kind of philosophies of life, would just kind of say, hey, you know, the key to suffering and evil is just to kind of recognize it's not really real and it's only mostly in your imagination. You just need to kind of separate yourself from it. Others have the opposite view of kind of like a karma that it's going to track you down step by step, town by town, right? And that just whatever you do is going to come back to you, right? In the early 1980s, there was a very famous conservative Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, who wrote a book called that became an international bestseller, millions of copies, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And and he's wrestling with this as someone who ministered to you know people as a rabbi, and then he himself when one of his children, his son was three years old, they found out he had a degenerative disease and he died by the age of 14 and with all the suffering of that. And so Krishna was asking the question that we all ask, why, how and why and what do we do with when bad things happen to us that don't seem to be directly correlated even to our decisions? Well, right now at East, we are preaching through the Gospel of Luke, which is a, a joy. And we are about, we're just over halfway through the story of Luke. And at this point in the story, Jesus has become very famous. People know who he is. He's healing people. He's teaching in a way that you know, the crowd's following him. And so people are coming to him for wisdom. And in our story for today that we're gonna look at here, this issue that we ask as well is something that they're wrestling with. What, how do we understand suffering and evil. And because you see, what's interesting is that you'd think that believing in the God of the Bible would actually solve this problem for us, but it turns out it makes it more complicated. Because you see, if you believed in say like a pantheon of Greek gods or Norse gods or something where there are some good gods and some bad gods, then when bad stuff happens to us, we could just kind of say, well, that's, you know, uh, that's, you know, the bad gods winning out that day or something. But if you believe in the Bible, it says that God is completely in control. There's not multiple gods. He is sovereign over all things and he's completely good. Then the problem of evil or the problem of suffering actually becomes more complicated. Because how could it be if God is all good and is kind in all he does and in control, how could it be that we still experience so much suffering and evil? And it turns out the Bible doesn't give a simplistic answer because there isn't a simplistic answer. The book of Job is part of that. And what we're gonna see in our text today is that the, the people come to Jesus as this wisdom teacher. They know he's from God. And so they ask him, what do you think about this? 
And I think what we're going to see is very powerful, but also maybe not what we'd expect. So if you have a Bible, um, turn with me to Luke 13. We just had Lindsay read it. You can look on the screen as well or pull it up on your phone. And look at what happens in verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time, so Jesus' teaching, Pastor Kevin was you know, teaching excellently last week on this and this whole judgment. And so there's people there, and they tell Jesus, who, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So what is that? Well, the Jewish people not only experienced all the kind of sufferings that all humans do like we do, they were also oppressed by a, a pretty heartless empire, the Roman Empire. And the governor over the area of Judea and, and all, all that area in what we call Palestine today, all the way up farther north, was this guy named Pontius Pilate. And he had probably one of the worst jobs as a Roman governor. <laughs> that is that even though the Mediterranean is beautiful and you, know, you can go and see where he lived at Caesarea Maritima, it's beautiful. And he had houses in Jerusalem, all these places, and had all the power, soldiers underneath him, it was a pretty hard job to rule over the Jewish people because they were so zealous and so sincere about there being only one God. And so there were a lot of conflicts between the Jewish people and the Romans who were oppressing them. And Pilate was very annoyed with them many times. And we know like most Roman rulers, he was heartless. Like if you weren't a Roman citizen, you had really, you were nothing. You were just a, an insect to them. Well, and what Apparently it happened around sometime, maybe right while Jesus was ministering, there was a large group of Galilean Jewish people. So that's up in the north where Jesus did his ministry as well. They had come probably to Passover into Jerusalem, taking the journey down. It's not too far, um, pilgrimage to it. And they were offering their sacrifices that God had prescribed in the temple precinct. And we don't know exactly what happened, but Pilate was probably afraid that it was like a a rebellion going to happen, like all these foreigner, foreigners are in town and he was worried about it getting like a powder keg. So he goes in and he just kills a bunch of them. This is tragic. I mean, we've heard stories of this happening in churches and temples and synagogues today as well. I mean, it just, it, you just feel the evil of it. And so these people come and ask Jesus, what, what do you think about this? I mean, how do we understand this? These people that were worshiping God were killed in the midst of their worship. And I think what Jesus says is powerful, but not what they expected or what you and I would expect. Look at verse two. So Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, if we're honest, that probably is not the answer they wanted to hear or what we expected. It almost even initially sounds kind of harsh, maybe a little cold, right? And then Jesus doesn't, though, leave it there. He actually presses on. Look at verses four and five, he says, or those 18 people who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So Siloam is this place just outside, just on the eastern banks, just outside the old city walls in Jerusalem. You can go there today. It's beautiful. Pretty recently excavated. It's still being excavated 
And it's, it's right there, we know this place. And it's also famous in the gospels because it's the place where in John chapter nine, where there was the man born blind. If you remember that story, it was a pretty long story. This was the place where Jesus had healed that man. And apparently what had happened is there's a reservoir, there are pools there. And around the same time, they, the Romans were building a, a tower there related probably to the reservoir. And as happened during construction, it fell over and several people died. 18 people died, workers and innocent bystanders. And so what Jesus is saying here is first he addressed this issue of like pure evil is done. And then you just have something that's an accident. And in both cases, did you notice he says the exact same thing? Were these people worse off or more sinful? No. But unless you too repent, you also will perish. So the question then still is, what is Jesus saying? And how is that an answer to the problem of suffering or the problem of evil? Well, I want to just offer a few thoughts for you to help you think through this from what Jesus is saying here, as well as just kind of putting the Bible together. And, and first, just to kind of highlight what are a couple of wrong ways of understanding this really big question of the problem of suffering and problem of evil, a couple of wrong ways that I think we can gain from this. One would be a wrong view would be this sort of very mechanistic understanding of the world. That when bad things happen and the degree to which they happen, it's because the people that were involved in them were bad and to that degree. And even though I think probably most of us would not want to say that that baldly, I think, I think there's probably, especially with people that we don't like or have had some conflict with, it's pretty easy at some point in our hearts, if we're honest, to say when something bad happens to somebody, well, they kind of deserved it. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that when we think about other people's suffering, not in our best moments, but we often think that they are kind of getting, they reaped what they sowed, but when we think about our, our own suffering, we always feel like it's unjust, <laughs> right? Well, Jesus clearly here and elsewhere rejects any kind of mechanistic understanding of the world. He says, these people are not, this is not a consequence of particular things they did. Yes, it's a consequence of sin in the world overall, but we cannot view suffering in this kind of one-to-one correlation between what we do and what happens after all, the book of Job, this is the whole point in the Old Testament, that the, his friends and his wife and everybody are thinking mechanistically, yet you know as the reader of it, because we kind of get the behind the scenes, that Job was actually a righteous man, and that in the mystery, the mystery of it all, and the mysteriousness of God's providence, God didn't cause it, but he did allow it, and that it wasn't a function of Job's great sinfulness, despite what his friends said. John chapter nine, where Jesus heals this man that was, born, that was at, the, at the pool of Siloam. When they're walking by there, the disciples see this beggar, this man, and they say, Who, why is this man blind? Was it his parents' sin or, or his sin? And Jesus' answer is neither. You, you misunderstand. So, and then when you think about our own human experience, and the Bible confirms this as well, often evil and bad people prosper and good people suffer. So clearly, Jesus is rejecting, the Bible's rejecting this sort of mechanistic understanding of what the relationship of suffering and goodness is. But 
the Bible and Jesus also reject the opposite view, which is just this kind of, it's chaos. It's, it's random. It's like out of control because the Bible is clear always that God really is in control, that it's not that there was a God that started things and then he's uninvolved in the world or something, not at all. This is the whole point of the Bible is that God is actively involved in caring for his creatures. And, and again, did you see how Jesus drives this home? Do not think that the Galileans or the, the people that died at Siloam were worse off. They're not. So what is he saying? If those are wrong ways, what is he saying? Well, I think, as I mentioned, that when you read those words, unless you repent, you too will perish. It's really easy to, to misunderstand Jesus' tone and his heart here. I don't know if you've thought about this before that, that, you know, we read the Bible a lot and we, especially in the Gospels, we're constantly hearing Jesus say things and that's awesome. This book is a gift to us and has been for 2,000 years. But one disadvantage we have as opposed to those who are hearing Jesus is that we don't, we can't tell by just reading the words what his body language was like, what his facial expression was, what his tone of voice was like. And so it'd be easy to read these words that he says twice, unless you repent, you too will perish. It'd be easy to read them in a very harsh way. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And maybe that voice sounds a lot like the voice of a father or mother you had who was harsh, or maybe you grew up in a church where that was what the preaching was. But I want to invite you to consider that we can, even though we don't have a recording of what Jesus says, to make sense of his tone and his body language here, I think if we think about the way Jesus shows up in all the Gospels, what we see is that his life is constantly manifesting compassion and love. Even in some of the, obviously, the harshest things he might say, like the woes upon the Pharisees in Matthew 23, what we see is that that ends with us being told that Jesus is weeping. He's lamenting. He's not fire and brimstoning people and being harsh, even though it might sound like this. I was just, these words are coming to us with compassion. And to, to understand that more, I think we also need to think for a moment again, what does it mean to say repent? And I, I've said this from the pulpit here before, but just to reiterate, when you and I hear the word repent, that sounds like a really negative word because our associations with repent probably are, I know I've shared this story before, like in college, my wife and I spent most spring breaks with Campus Crusade for Christ, sharing our faith on the beaches in Florida. And I remember as a young Christian, you know, seeing people there like yelling at people on the street corner, carrying a big cross down the beach and yelling at people, repent, you sinners, repent, you sinners. That's not what we were doing, but that's what other people would do. And maybe when you hear the word repent, that's what you think of, this kind of harsh attack. But I'd like to encourage you that that's not what repentance means in the Bible. Repentance is not a word of condemnation. It's an invitation to turn. It's an invitation to, to turn from one way of seeing and being in the world that is gonna result in destruction towards goodness. It's a father saying to a son or a daughter, these ways are not gonna bring you life. So turn, come, come back this way. You know John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he sent his only, beloved, his only begotten son that 
All those who believe in him shall not perish. Do you remember verse 17 as well? For God did not, uh, for Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the heart of repentance. This is the heart of what Jesus is saying. He is compassionate. And when he says repent, he's not condemning. He's saying, these are the ways that if you, if you and I don't look inside, these are the ways of life, if we don't turn back to God, that are gonna result in our destruction. So in light of that, what is he saying then? Well, I would describe what Jesus' response here to the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, is that it's an invitation to inward work. Jesus doesn't solve the problem of evil and problem of suffering, even as the book of Job doesn't. And I don't want you to to hear me in any way saying that lament and grief are bad things and, and questions and confusing and being confused and even angry at what's happened to you. Those are okay. God's not worried about that. The the book of Psalms models people experiencing all those emotions and crying out, how long, O Lord? It's okay not to be okay. It really is. And I think what Jesus is saying here and what the Bible is saying is that when we experience suffering and difficulty and evil and trial, big and large, we can get hardened by it or we can see it as an invitation to repent. Not in a mechanistic way that, oh, this happened because I did this. Not at all. But that whatever in the mystery of God, whatever's happening in my life, large or small, that is a gift to do inner work and to be honest before God and with myself about what's going on and in my life, good and bad, and turn my heart in softness again toward him. Now, maybe you're not convinced that I'm interpreting Jesus' words here rightly, that he's appealing to us with love and compassion. Well, look at what he says next. I think this drives it home. Look at verse six. It says, then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So He said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit in this fig tree and haven't found any, so cut it down. Why should I use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. What what is this doing here? Well, if you read in the Bible, you'll see that there are a lot of trees in the Bible. (laughs) And there are also the metaphor, the image of a tree bearing fruit is a big idea. Old Testament, New Testament, the prophets use it. Uh, Psalm 1, Jesus talks about it this way. It's a very natural and powerful image to think about how that the kind of people we are sooner or later will manifest itself in a kind of fruit. So it's it's a very powerful image. And a lot of times this image is used in the Bible to exhort us to pay attention to what kind of tree we are and to to pay attention. So the fruit of the spirit, Paul talks this way, right? And in fact, in other places, a fig tree comes up. You may know the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree at the end of his ministry in Matthew and in Mark, where which is an image of the leadership of Israel not actually responding to his call and therefore um, coming under condemnation, which is a real thing. There is real judgment. But what's very interesting and distinct about this use of this tree fruit image or metaphor here is that Jesus tells this parable to emphasize something that's also true and something a little different than what he usually does with this image. 
And that's to remind us that God is incredibly patient. That God is incredibly patient with us. That even though it is a reality that sooner or later our lives will manifest the kind of heart we are, and there is a reality of judgment. There's no doubt that there is a reality of judgment. Just look at the previous text from last week as well. God will set the world to right. But what Jesus wants to emphasize here is that even though that's true, for the now and in the midst of suffering and the midst of the confusion of evil happening to us and, and our own sinfulness, God is incredibly patient. He's incredibly patient with his creatures even when they don't bear fruit. That's the ground we stand on, God's patient and patience. And Jesus' call to repentance here is undergirded or supported, not by him saying, there's no judgment, don't worry about that, or saying nothing matters, or saying, well, you better watch out in a mechanistic way. He, he undergirds his whole response to this great question of the problem of suffering and problem of evil by reminding, calling us to repent, but then reminding us that even in the midst of our confusion and suffering and fruitlessness, God is still patient with us. And so what do we do with this? Well, here I think is God's voice to us today. And I'd sum it up in this phrase that I want to encourage you to attend to the tending. And what I mean by that is this. I've already mentioned, I think suffering and difficulty, large and small, is an invitation for inner work. It's really true. But most of all this morning, I want to speak a word of peace and good news to you. And that is that no matter what you're going through, large or small, God in his love and patience with you, who he knows you, he knows you better than you know yourself, he is actually paying attention to you and he is attending and tending you in the midst of your suffering for your good. He is clearing out in a mysterious way that Again, not mechanistically, we can't understand it, but in our suffering, in our loss, in our disappointment, large and small, God is actually clearing out weeds that choke our soul. He's clearing out underbrush. He is pruning limbs that are diseased. That, friends, in the mystery of embracing it, again, not mechanistically, but that is where faith comes in, that even in the midst of all of our difficulties, to say God is tending to me. And, and I love these images that he's putting fertilizer on, he's pruning it. The, these are pictures of God's patient love toward us. Again, that doesn't deny grieving. It doesn't demi- deny lamenting. It doesn't demi- deny being angry at what happens. Not at all. Those are all part of being human. But it is to say that at the ground of our hope, is that God is actually attending to us. And, and I could not help but think of these famous words that Jesus said to his disciples on the last night of his life there in Jerusalem. I want to read for you from John 15. He says, speaking in the same way, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, and while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. 
You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you are pruned. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. This is a reality. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, there's so much there, but I just want you to notice the same wise and loving combination of the reality of how we orient our lives and and the choices we make do matter. And also this emphasis on God's care and tending and patience. And what I want you to take away today, friends, is that in the midst of whatever you're going through or whatever will happen to you, our job is not to focus on you know, bearing more fruit and trying harder to bear more fruit as if that would do it. Our focus really is to attend to the tending, to recognize that God is tending to us and pruning us, not in a, in a way that you know, makes us you know, think of him in an, in an evil way, but with faith, recognizing the mystery and the pain of goodness. I was talking to somebody after the first service who was, said it so well in the midst of great trial that he's in, he said, I, I wish God's goodness wasn't so painful. I think that's a profound way of acknowledging God's goodness and our suffering. And what I want you to know is that if you are a child of God, your heart wants to repent, you want to bear fruit, your soul is made for eternity, and through the power of the Spirit, you will. But I also want to say to you, there are times and seasons where we don't bear fruit. I've been reading a lot about trees recently, and even these mighty oaks and sequoias, they often have seasons based on whether it's disease or drought where they kind of draw in upon themselves just to survive. But the doing of that enables them then to bear fruit and, and cones and seeds and other things. Again, I don't know where you are today, but all of us will go through times where we are just withdrawn and, and maybe today you feel stuck. Maybe you just feel completely stuck in your own sin or things that have happened to you. My word to you today, Jesus' word to you today, is God is patient with you. He is tending to you. He's present. And he is doing good on your behalf even when you and I can't see it. I don't know what 2024 holds for you or for me. I know there will be suffering, large and small, in our congregation and in our world. And we have to figure out a way beforehand how we're going to process that. Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, is good in part in the sense that it's full of compassion, but it's ultimately not satisfactory because what he says is, yes, God, the God of the Bible is good, but he's actually not in control. Friends, I want to say to you, if God's not in control, then we are, things are way more hopeless. I think the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus is here saying, yes, there's a reality of suffering. Use that as an opportunity to remember God's patience and to do the inner work of turning to him even in the midst of it. 
Thanks for listening. For more information about our church, visit sojourneast.com.